0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's scripture is Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We are continuing in our series called God's Speed. Uh, For those who like knowing the structure of messages, this sermon will have two different halves, one around the problem and the other on the solution. Uh, I also want to let you know that the sermon... Has outside of Scripture, has two main sources. One is a documentary of the same name, Godspeed, which is a documentary about an American priest who found himself in Scotland, and it details all the different um, lessons that he learned along the way. It's on Vimeo, and it's a great 30-minute long little documentary. The second source is a book uh, called The Relentless Elimination of Hurry by a Portland pastor, James Mark. When I found that church and I found his teaching, it made me think, oh, our church is not all that unique. There are other people out there that are speaking the same things and valuing the same things. And so I found his book to be really powerful, and it especially helped form uh, the message, uh, this message today. That title of his book, the ruthless elimination of hurry comes from a conversation that another pastor had with this kind of this old sage by the name of Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard is an author, a theologian. He was also a professor of philosophy for many years and he has recently passed. But there's this conversation that this pastor had with Dallas Willard where he began to ask him questions. And one of the questions is, he asks is like, how can someone truly be who they were created to be? Like, is what? What can we do to become who God has called us to be? And Willard paused for a while, like you know, one of those pauses that make you like wonder if something profound's about to come. And uh, he responded with this quote: "You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life." And the pastor, the other pastor, goes, oh, "Okay," and he scribbled down the quote and goes, "Okay, that's good. That's good. What else?" And then Dallas Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It's interesting out of all the different possible opponents to spiritual vitality and growth and health, that out of all the different things that the great enemy in his mind was hurry. Why might that be the case? You would think that all the, maybe some other thing would be the, a greater foe for spiritual vitality, for being whole and for being uh, being healthy. You know, things like selfishness, or some people might say, a postmodern deconstruction of truth might be another issue, or rampant individualism, or materialism. Why? Why not some of those? Or apathy towards the poor. But Dallas Willard thought, no, it's hurry. For us in our day and age, that's the number one enemy. That's the problem. Why should hurry be such a destructive force? Is that true? Some of our greatest regrets in life come from moments when we are hurried and rushed. We know that, that harsh words to have a tendency to spill out thoughtless actions distracted decisions all happen in the context of hurry and when we live with this constant sense of hurry we know that we become tired exhausted though we seem to be fixated on efficiency it seems as if we as a community have a really fi- hard time finding rest it's, it's wild to me that with all the time-saving gadgets that we have, all the different life hacks, all the different abilities that we've learned along the way, that our life is still marked by this frantic pace, where it seems as if the enemy is time. Like we're fighting against time. We have less leisure time, and we don't have an excess of it. This was not the concern of generations before us. there's decades back. People imagine a society that had too much leisure time. Sci-fi writers, you know, they wrote whole novels about how we as a society, we would what would we do with all that amount of time? There was literally a Senate subcommittee that was gathered in 1967. In 1967, the Senate subcommittee gathered because they had great trepidation about the future of our society, Namely, by 1985, the average American would only work 22 hours a week, only for 27 weeks a year. That was their great concern. And little did they know that the pace of life will not slow down, that our amount of work, the amount of time we're clocked in is not going to dwindle. It actually, it's just gone up. The average Average work hours have increased, not decreased, and we work more weeks per year than before. Though we might wear our busyness as a badge of honor, we know it takes a toll on us. We know it's destructive to our bodies, to our emotional well-being, to our relationships, to our communities. We seem to be addicted to distractions with a sense of pathological busyness, a habitual and compulsive trend to be hurried and having a really hard time disengaging that trend. The problem with hurry is not only what it adds to our life, the burden it adds to our life, but honestly, it cuts us off from the things that we need. It seems as if the spiritual life actually opens up at a slower pace. In the past, people used to say that term Godspeed uh, as, as a farewell, as a blessing. Hey, Godspeed to you. And I wonder if we could re-enchant what that phrase might mean for us, for us to speak Godspeed to each other. In that documentary, Godspeed, uh, I loved one of the quotes I heard um, that priest say. He said, we must learn to slow down to catch up with God we find that God's speed is against the grain of this world. It's very counterintuitive to the way in which we live because God has a tendency to work at a different pace, a different speed. Now, the speed of our life, we can look at all the different ways in which it affects us, mental health, emotional health, our relationships. We could call the space and the, the speed that we're living as almost inhumane but I'd actually go on to say, and this maybe is a little too strong, but I'd honestly say the speed of our life is also anti-Christ. It's in- incompatible to see the, the, the speed of our life, the trends and the habits of our life come alongside the life of Jesus and his basic teachings. It's what we, when we were asked to, when Jesus was asked what the ultimate calling of life is, his response was Love. And we know in our lives that this is the most important thing that we have, that we're called to, is to love God, love others, love our neighbor, love our enemy. This is the call of following Jesus. And we know that love is time-consuming. It's slow. Hurry and love seem to be incompatible. Like, do you feel loved when you're trying to engage a friend or a spouse or a partner and you're trying to engage them and they are elsewhere, distracted? You know, you just want to be like, hey, I'm right here. Can you slow down to be with me? It's interesting, out of all the different characteristics that, um, uh, that the church planner, apostle Paul, he said that love is patient, That's the first description is love is patient. It takes time. It requires margin, interruptibility. It has to be present. I remember uh, hearing an interview with Brene Brown. Um, She was talking about an experience that she had as a family. They went on a family vacation. One day their family kind of split off. One group of her family had this fun adventure and she was stuck with her young son. And she was struggling with her relationship with her son because she felt so tired of trying to speed him up. He was easily distractible. He would get lost in things. And so she was just tired of saying, hey, come on, come on, hurry up, hurry up. You know, for some of us parents of young kids, we know we say that phrase, hurry up, please, often. And I added the word please because I just just wanted to come across like I'm more kind than I actually am with my kids. I usually don't say please, it's just, Come on already, right? And she grew tired of that. So this day when it was just her and her son, she said, I'm done. I am fed up with trying to get my son to, to speed up. I'm just going to live the day on his pace. And I'm not, allowed my, I'm not allowing myself to move him faster than he wants to go. And she said it was the most painful experience for a long time. And then she realized that there's this other world that her son was living in that she wasn't because he was more present, that he would find, uh, they were walking, I think it was, if I remember correctly, walking out of a restaurant, there was a koi pond, and as soon as she saw, she was, oh, no, because her son (laughs) was at this koi pond forever, and, you know, her son was mesmerized, and after she allowed herself to be there long enough, she was mesmerized, too, there seems to be a different pace that we were created to be in, a different pace in which love exists. Late Japanese theologian, uh, Kosoki Koyama, he wrote a book entitled Three Mile an Hour God. Three Mile an Hour God. The basic premise of this book was that people walk at a pace of three miles per hour. And this is how Jesus lived and how he loved. I love this quote. God walks slowly Because he is love. Love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow. Yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. Perhaps for us to live in God's speed, we would discover the power of love and where love flourishes more and more. We need to learn to value that, I think, because it's natural for us not to, to value slow. Oftentimes, slow is a derogatory word. How was that movie? It was super slow. How was, the, how was the service at that restaurant? Oh, so slow. Even you might call people who have a lower IQ, what do you call them, slow. You know, this is not something that we are lifting up and valuing. But Jesus' kingdom was upside down. He flipped things upside down. Hurry, rush, and speed is of the enemy, and slow is of the way of Christ. Even the way in which Jesus spoke about his kingdom, the different parables he talked about, this is the kingdom. It's not an an efficient app. (laughs) Yeah, see, yeah, it's a slow speed. Jesus's kingdom is not an efficient app. It's not found in the humming of a machine. Jesus's kingdom is slow like this, slow like watching seeds grow, like waiting for a groom who's way too late to show up at a party. It's like a woman who has lost her treasured coin and is searching the whole house Who loves the patient work of looking throughout your whole house for something you love? No, but that's the kingdom. It takes time. And perhaps why hurry is the great enemy and the problem is because if your life is marked by hurry, how can you enter prayer? How can one learn worth without production? How can one practice solidarity with those in the margin if you're not willing to stop and slow down? Where is contemplation? How can we learn to listen to one another and to God if we don't learn how to be slow with each other? Wisdom, we know this. Wisdom is not found in hurry or in skimming or multitasking, but wisdom is often found in contemplation, quiet. It requires patience and attention, stillness. I think this might be one of the reasons why Jesus He loved to tell parables. Instead of just giving bullet points of beliefs, Jesus would tell a parable. Why? Because to find the meaning that means that you would have to sit with it, ruminate on it, talk about it with your friends. What was this thing about? And you would figure out. But for those who are too impatient, the wisdom was lost on you. Because it took time. It took a different speed. Our life is marked by this inhumane sense of hurry. And it's not only inhumane, but it's antithetical to the three-mile-per-hour way of Jesus, Jesus' life and Jesus' love. So if that is the problem, is there a solution? Well, here is the solution, I believe. The solution is to follow Jesus. The solution is not, how do I get more time? Or... Uh, Like Fab shared beautifully last week, it's not about finding a bigger jar to cram more things into. Uh, The solution is found in following Jesus in a different way. Jesus came not only to deliver us from sin and death, but Jesus also came to show us how to live. This is how you live well, follow me. And it's worth noting that Jesus didn't save us by being some superhuman, someone without needs, without a need for rest, um, endless strength, or greater capacity. He was like us. Jesus came fully human. He needed rest. He needed stillness. He needed quiet. And our Savior came to show us the way to be human. Jesus did this as, as, a, as a rabbi. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus was one of many rabbis, another way of saying a teacher. And rabbis typically had two different things. Rabbis had, first of all, they had apprentices. Though the church most commonly used the word disciple, uh, we don't really find that word elsewhere, so it's kind of lost on us. And so a lot of people, including the author of that book, James Mark Homer, you know, prefer the, the title apprentice because, what do apprentices do? They spend time with a master craftsman and they learn this trade, a new trade, and they stop their craftsman along the way and go, Why do you do that? What is this tool used for? And after, after a long time, after slowly just being around this craftsman, the apprentice begins to learn how to do it as well. It's slowly learning the craft for themselves. This is a very similar uh, to the way in which Hebrew rab- rabbis teach their disciples or apprentices. These apprentices didn't go to seminary. They didn't sit in a classroom and hear lectures. They lived life with their rabbis, with their teachers, they would see how they lived. They would hear their teachings and then see them embodied in their lifestyle. So this is how the rabbis lived. And their their apprentices, it was their joy and their honor to be covered with their dust of their rabbi's sandals, to walk behind them and observe them. And so this is, way, this is the way in which Jesus entered this world, as he was one of those rabbis. And along the way, an apprentice would learn not only uh, what the teachings of this rabbi were, but they would experience the second thing that every rabbi would have, which was their yoke. Um, I'm going to try to not tell many dad yokes. Um, It's very tempting. I'm not going to do it. So a yoke is not only a tool used for livestock. um, It had a deeper meaning than that. A rabbi's yoke was like their code of conduct. If you were to follow a rabbi, you would see their, their teachings and their ethics displayed and, and you would take on their yoke. Imagine if you would like a life coach, it's kind of like a modern day version. If you signed up to meet with a life coach, they would tell you, okay, if you want to follow me, that means I'm going to change how you eat. I'm going to change how you sleep. I'm going to change your work schedule. You're going to work out differently. You're going to do stretching. Uh, you're going to do all these sorts of things because I want you to learn how I, I'm going to, show you how to live well. You're going to do intermittent fasting. You're going to do transcendental meditation twice a day, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. This is putting on that person's yoke. Um, A rabbi would use the same thing. If you were to follow a rabbi, you would have to put on their yoke. So for a rabbi, they might say, you have to give away all your possessions to the poor. A rabbi might say, as a part of his yoke, you need to uh, turn and face the holy city and pray seven times a day. Or if to put on a rabbi's yoke, it might mean uh, you need to ensure that all Samaritans are worthy of being despised and never befriend any of, one, any of them. This would all be a part of that person's yoke, that teacher's yoke. It's like a mixture of ethics and beliefs and lifestyle. So when Jesus came to the scene, Jesus saw all the different yokes, the teachings that these rabbis had. And He saw how misaligned they were. Not only were they misaligned, but they were commonly dangerous and exhausting. So with this in mind, let's go back to this passage that we heard read just a little bit ago and see how this rabbi was presenting a different kind of yoke. So in verse 28, it says this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I find that this passage, more than any other, has this ability to release oxygen to weary people like this gathering in this room. There's like this collective, like, oh, this sounds so good. Can I ask the, the question, what seems so life-giving about this passage? What stands out to you? A phrase, a word. Rest. Rest. Light. What's that? Easy. easy. We love easy, don't we? <laughs> Anything else? Mm hmm. Gentle. There's something about this that we know this is what we long for, that we know this is what we need. It's interesting, as a staff, we were reading this passage uh, on Tuesday at our staff meeting. We were talking about it, and one um, staff member said, Is a yoke really what tired people need? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, In his mind, it's like, golly, that just sounds like one more thing. Seriously? Uh, Interestingly, a scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, he he had the same thought. And he sat with it for a while. And he talked about, what is the surprising gift of an easy yoke? This is what he said. This is a long quote, so I apologize for that. But it's just too good to, to trim down. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke, right? But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift that he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Instead of offering an escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that a Obedience to His yoke will develop in us a balancing, a balance and a way of carrying a life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. It's great. It's a great concept. What his point is that Jesus doesn't want us to escape our world. Jesus wants to, us to learn a different way to walk through it. This is why the solution is following Jesus. We might have a negative response to that idea of having a yoke put on us, having a yoke for the weary, because we automatically believe that God will drive us harder, make us work harder, go further. But what if, in fact, this yoke could be used by your gentle, loving Savior to say, that's enough for today. Like, it's time for you to slow down. It's time to stop. This is the secret of the easy yoke is, as I, as I read recently, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Many of, many of us want that promise of having life and life to the fullest without having the willingness to change the ways in which we're living, changing the pace, the rhythms, the habits. And for us, we might plead for the promises of Jesus without wanting that lifestyle. But this is why this is a good yoke, an easy one, The reality is that we are already wearing a yoke. We're already wearing it. It's the one that's just given to us in our society. It's the one that's common to us in our culture. It's the yoke of trying to get after the American dream, the yoke of upward mobility, of the pursuit of happiness. It's the the yoke of that life and significance is found in materialism. And I imagine Jesus, full of compassion, of us weary people with the yokes of our day and age on, I wonder if he comes to us and would say, is anyone tired? Is anyone weary? Come to me. I, I can give you rest. There's a different way to live. I know for me, I'm, I'm ready for a different yoke. One that's gentle, one that's easy, one that leads to life. So over these next four weeks, we're gonna consider four different practices that we believe could be part of the solution. There's four different practices that are a part of putting on a, an easy yoke. They're gonna be simplicity, slowness, solitude and silence, and then the yoke of Sabbath. But I wanna leave you with this promise and in this invitation from Jesus one more time. And because I love how Eugene Peterson transcribed this passage. I want to read that to you, and I want to invite you just to close your eyes and imagine that this is a loving word from the one who knows how life is meant to be. If Jesus could come to you and say these words, how would you respond? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. My hope and my prayers over these next four weeks is that we can learn the unforced rhythms of grace that is Jesus' yoke, and that we would experience a different speed in which to live. Perhaps we might even call it God's speed.